You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Holly Grosvenor. This is Jennifer Ma. This is Visha from The Frugal Position, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast with the stellar Doc G. It was my best and worst financial decision. Or maybe just two bad financial decisions all rolled up into one. A year into my residency while living in St. Louis, I got the strange idea to buy a home even though I would be finished with my program in two short years and likely would be moving away. An exhaustive search landed us the perfect place, a two-bedroom, two-bath townhome a few minutes walk from the hospital. I secured myself a doctor's loan, a no-down payment 8% interest rate option, and closed without a second thought. Fast forward two years later, ready to move back to Chicago, the real estate market was hot and I sold the place almost the minute the for sale sign went up. I walked away with $50,000 of pure profit. All good, right? And then once I got to Chicago, I walked into a Fidelity brokerage storefront without an appointment, took the advice of a newly minted financial advisor who was taking walk-ins and put the whole windfall into tech stocks. The year was 2002 and I was about to lose it all in the tech bubble. I was naive, inexperienced, and overly optimistic, which is usually the exact mix of hubris required in order to commit really stupid financial mistakes. When I finally did get a good financial advisor, he convinced me to sell everything which locked in my gigantic losses. Almost 18 years later, I am reminded of my folly every tax season where I am still reaping the benefits of those capital losses. All these years later. And speaking of our worst financial mistakes, many of us dig our way out of financial hardship by becoming freelancers, small business people, and consultants. What's even harder than getting that big job or account? It's getting paid for it once the work is done. That's why we are giving a big thanks to Joust for supporting Earn and Invest. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. Pay Armor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com backslash earnpod and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash E-A-R-N-P-O-D. Jennifer Ma is a skilled problem solver. While her official title might point you toward her work with the Department of Defense, we in the personal finance community know her as a people connector, choose fi organizer, and bringer of brownies to meetups near and far. I feel privileged to call her my friend and confidant. Jennifer, welcome to Earn and Invest. Oh my gosh, Doc, that was like so kind of you. That was like one of the best introductions I've ever had. And you are (laughs) way too kind, way too kind. The only thing sweeter than the brownies that Jennifer brought to FinCon last year is her personality in general. Oh, that is just silver tongue sweetness there. I want you to all know, because he's making it sound like this was a concerted plan, but really, um, I made brownies and I checked my luggage so I could hand carry four batches of brownies, fudge chip, peanut butter cup, brownies, homemade to FinCon. But you know what I forgot? Business cards. Newbie mistake. So I don't know. (laughs) They might not know how to reach you, but they remember the brownies. Disha Spath is a mother, a wife, and a primary care physician trained in internal medicine. Her family was the typical physician household that inflated their lifestyle right out of residency. 
They found themselves deep in student debt and unhappy when they found the utility of frugality and paid off $208,000 of student loans in a year and a half. Hey, Disha, I'm happy to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. You guys are so cool. $208,000 in what, a year and a half? That's crazy. Actually, one month less than a year and a half, (laughs) but yes. (laughs) That's got to be some kind of record. Oh, man. Yeah, I had no idea we could do it that fast. We were shooting for three years, and it just happened faster. Holly Grosner grew up in a frugal household and was taught very early on to save and spend money wisely. At the age of 20, she lost her father to a heart attack and learned along with her mother how to navigate their way through the family finances. She now has utilized this knowledge to become a financial money coach to teach others how to handle their money so they can reach their goals. Holly, it's nice to meet you. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much. I'm excited to have you on. And you and I have interacted for a while on Facebook, but this is the first time we're having a true face-to-face interaction. So it's cool to meet you in person. Yes, it's great to meet you in person. I want to get started today by talking about the elephant in the room. It is March 16th, 2020, and I feel like we can't start any conversation today without at least touching on coronavirus. This may be one of the true black swan events of our time. We don't know. But right now, people are running around trying to figure out what to do with their finances. And basically, I see three common threads. One is sell, sell, sell. The other is buy, buy, buy. And the last is let's hold on and see what happens. So Holly, let's start with you. What are you telling people to do with their money right now? Well, definitely right now is being aware, especially with my clients. Some of them are still trying to build an emergency fund. So it's working on continuously doing that process. And if they are in a situation where they may have a job that they may not be able to go to work right now, it's definitely be very cautious of what they're spending. But for everybody else, it's more of just stay still, don't panic, we're going to get through this, and to take one day at a time. Jennifer, how do you react to those people who seem to be licking their chops right now and saying, oh, this is a great buying opportunity? I have to admit that sometimes that rubs me the wrong way. You know, I can understand greed. Greed's a human emotion. And I don't like to think that people are profiting on the misery of other people. What I would suggest is think carefully about how you want to be remembered and whether or not the actions serve you and your family and your community at large. And because I am a community person and I love people, it's always going to be about the whole people and not my individual well-being that's going to matter. So I have an interesting thing. I mean, if I had dry powder, meaning I had cash set aside that I didn't need for any reason and my emergency fund, like Holly said, is incredibly healthy, I would probably be looking at my investment policy statement, my IPS, and thinking about, hmm, is my action supporting the initial policy that I set up? Disha, Jennifer mentioned that policy statement, and it makes Mm -hmm. me wonder, is this a time for us to be changing our general financial plan? That's the one thing we should not be doing right now. We should look at our investor policy statement that we wrote in calm times and try to stick to that. I think that is probably the best way to keep our decision-making separated from emotion right now, because I know for me, emotion has a lot to do with how I interact with the world and the decisions that I make. That's kind of the first thing I need to separate out when I'm dealing with my finances. For me personally, I'm just sticking to my plan and trying not to change or deviate from that too much. Holly, I mentioned before this idea that none of us have really feel like we've lived through black swan events. Do you think this could be a true black swan event? Yes, I do. (laughs) That's my concern. I do. But I also remember going through 9-11 and watching that happen and how scary it was and the unknowns. I feel this is a little bit more temporary because with 9-11, it was so unknown. Like we had no idea what was going to happen next, particularly where I was at the time. I was pretty young. We weren't sure about jobs. We weren't sure about anything because everything was closing and the market had changed so much. So there is that feeling that's what this is because this is such a new thing and we haven't ever experienced anything like this in the world, like this magnitude. We're closing things temporarily. But I also see it as that we could possibly recover as well faster just because I think people will want to spend again after this does calm down. 
Jennifer, one thing I've noticed is over the last year or two, the number of naysayers speaking to index funds has risen quite a bit. It seems like there's so many people out there who are saying maybe index funds aren't the way to go. That chatter has certainly increased since this coronavirus hoopla. Could the coronavirus affect our general index investing strategy? I think it depends on whether or not emotion overrides your investment policy statement, right? Or your natural passivity. I hate to use that word, but the laissez-faire attitude where we're just going to let it ride. I think that active money management will make a pitch that this is a way that we can control and anticipate market shifts based on patterns of epidemiology and other uh, issues that face futures and things like that. But really, I think for the general investor, the people like me, the mom and pop little guys, I think that index funds are still going to be here, especially passive index funds. When you don't have the bandwidth or interest to do a deep dive yourself, I think these are going to stay, especially with the fees the way they are. Okay, so the number one thing I think that people should focus on is getting a system in place that supports their financial well-being, including an active savings goal, an active investment goal. And that muscle is the thing that we need to keep exercising even during bad times, this reaction of active versus passive, once you get to that argument, you've got 90% of the problem solved, in my humble opinion. Disha, look into your crystal ball for a little bit for us. When are we going to start feeling like things are back to normal? Can you guess? Is it going to be months or is it going to be years? It really depends on how bad the coronavirus gets, you know, and how much we mirror Italy and China's progress, whether we sway more towards that or more towards the countries that have gotten the virus under control quickly with minimal deaths. Depends on how well we socially distance and how well we control that virus. And there's so much unknown. So <laughs> I hate to make a call, <laughs> you know, but right now we're just learning about this virus. It's complicated, right? Because we were already looking at the possibility of a financial downturn somewhere around the corner anyway, without all this coronavirus stuff, right? So everyone was talking about it's been so many years of a bull market. It's only a matter of time before things go south. We didn't realize that there would be such an inciting event, but we were thinking that we were in for a few years of downturn anyway. It's hard to really put it in perspective The other possibility, which we don't talk about much, maybe because we just don't think it's likely, is that coronavirus ends up being less severe than we thought, or some of the social distancing really does the trick, and we come out as a stronger nation, and whether that actually pushes the stock market forward. I really think that this is an opportunity for us to focus on the things that are much more optimistic about what can occur. I don't know enough about world economics to put on a pin, right? But I can tell you what I would hope for. One, that we all band together, that we all recognize that we're all in it together, and that we help each other. Two, I've seen so many people naysay social distancing and say, this is ridiculous. We're overreacting. The cases aren't that big in San Diego, California, the US. Why are you overreacting? If coronavirus does not become full-blown in the U.S. and we weather it well, then people like us who are being extra careful will get mocked because that's the way it is. Those precautions are funny and laughable until they're necessary. The result is going to determine how we're viewed, if you will. Everyone wants security, but they all hate security because it's one of those things that makes people's lives difficult, right? You can't have like a four-letter password anymore. And we hate that inconvenience. But once you're hacked, what do we do? We go the other way and we recognize that there's a a situation that we need to manage. So that's one. Two, we don't know what's going to come out of this. Wouldn't it be neat to think about how our supply chains can be improved, right? And we are a global economy. I am not at all saying that we're going to bring everything back to the US. But I do think that this is a way that we can look at how do we get foodstuffs, pharma, everything to affected populations in isolation, because things like this may happen and it may be a black swan, but still. In regards to a lot of this, it's really interesting, the very beginning of the process when people started really talking about needing to get supplies, groceries, toilet paper, you know, it's been a popular thing people have been talking about. In my area, I'm in Virginia, I'm right outside DC. When we have a threat of snow, 
if anybody says the word, people run to the stores. And so for us in our area, it was actually like, oh yeah, it's another snowstorm. Our supply chains always go down whenever that word is used. And so it's almost like that's what was happening at first. And this was several weeks ago, in fact. A lot of the grocery stores in our area and convenience stores and so forth did try to keep up because they were getting their supplies. But then as the talk increased and this talk about schools closing, the talk about governments limiting access as well as businesses closing temporarily, everybody started purchasing more. So I think it's really interesting in that regard. And I think that we will definitely learn from this as to like how this is for every community. It's interesting with my own community, our community decided to close our schools for four weeks because we have spring break included. The concern people were having too is how are teachers going to be paid that don't normally get paid if they're not working? How do we handle these places that are being closed or asked to be closed? I think there's going to be a lot of lessons learned in case this ever were to happen again. I've already noticed that recently they're starting to take away some of the barriers that doctors have in front of them when they're trying to provide care, such as not being able to practice across state lines unless you pay a huge fee and then wait several months. And medicine really doesn't change across state lines. So the government acknowledging that that was getting in our way and limiting the restriction for people to get into a nursing home when they're hospitalized. It's like you have to be hospitalized for at least two to three days. And they took that away as well. Those barriers that were institutional in place that would frustrate doctors are now being taken down. And I hope that that continues. That's another positive that I'm seeing come out of here. I didn't realize they had done that, Disha, because I think about all the frustrations that all of my professional friends who are certified in certain states, how they can't just migrate and work other places really easily. They have to all do testing and recertification based on state-specific criteria. But that could be really awesome for professionals like yourself. I'm glad to hear that. That was the announcement on Friday when he invoked the Stafford Act, President Trump. And so that's when he announced that. And so the rollout and how that actually gets put into place is still to be seen. But at least that's being talked about. I feel like the coronavirus has taken over so many aspects of our life. I'm going to try to steer it away from taking over the rest of our podcast and transition to some of our worst financial mistakes and why we made them and what we learned from them. But before I do that, I feel like we need to talk about how all of us got involved in the personal finance world in the first place. Holly, let's start with you. What was your introduction to being interested in personal finance? When it comes to financial independence and the concept of being able to have enough assets in order to live off of, probably started even in high school and college, especially after my father had passed away, realizing how important it was to have a good retirement and to have all your information, personal finance together. After that happened, and I worked with my mom trying to figure all that stuff out, my boyfriend at the time, no husband, and I really were considering the concept before we even knew what it was. So it was about 2014, later on, after we've had kids, that we actually learned the terminology and we got kind of sucked into the learning about Chooseify and a couple of the other groups out there learning and supporting and realizing that we can choose the way we want to live and we can choose the way we want to eventually possibly retire. I love the concept of being able to have that freedom so that if my husband wants to work, he can. If I want to work, I can. I think that it gives that option where we possibly travel or we can live someplace else that doesn't cost as much. That's probably one of our biggest dreams. Jennifer, do you remember your specific entry point into learning about personal finance? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Yes. And I'm actually a little embarrassed in trying to embrace it just because I think in embracing my mistakes, maybe I can help other people not do the same thing. You guys, I've been through a series of layoffs in the 90s. Oh, I'm carbon dating myself. Dang it. Okay. So (laughs) no looking me up past that. Okay. And so I, I was married at the time. That's one. And then two, I got divorced and that caused upheaval in my life. One of the reasons why is because at the time that I was separating from my husband, I was actually on disability and unemployed. I actually had to ask my doctor to release me. It was disability caused through a work injury, workers' comp. So I pushed for that. So all that instability in my life helped me actually take more control. So I weathered the divorce. I went back into tech and then tech failed me because we didn't sell enough stuff. So therefore there were more layoffs. And then I decided to set up a business. But all my life, I've been interested in personal finance. I just didn't have a word for it. I grew up poor. 
there were already tool sets I had. I just didn't have an investing arm and I really didn't have anyone to talk about the things I wanted to get in place in my life. Disha, I feel like you and I are part of a subset of people interested in personal finance and that's physicians interested in personal finance. Do you remember where you first heard about either financial independence or personal finance from? Was it a physician related site? Not initially. I got interested in finance back in 2008. I was in college and really wanted to learn about it. And then the market crashed. Then I got scared away and I never did anything. And I stuck my head into books and started you know, medical school and residency and was totally out of the game finance-wise for a little while. In that time frame, I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that was my initial entry into the concept of financial independence, but more from passive income side. We kind of got lost. And then after residency, we were still lost. And that's my preview into my financial mistake is we kind of followed the herd and did what I thought we were supposed to do and inflated our lifestyle. And right then is kind of where I figured out that I had really veered away from the whole goal of financial independence that I had in the back of my mind. And then I needed to get back on track. And that's when we changed stuff. And then I found Choose FI and the financial independence community is after we actually started making those changes. Holly, we talk about personal finance, we talk about financial independence, and then a lot of people are interested in the FIRE financial independence retire early movement. I'm wondering if you have as much interest in early retirement, so to speak, as in managing your personal finances. Very interested in it, but I'm more interested in the personal finance because I really feel like so many people are in debt and need help just to get out of debt and to create emergency funds and figure out how to get on track. It's so important. I mean, that's the first step. Before even talking about financial independence, before even talking about retire early, and that's who I work with. And I work with clients of all income levels with all types of experience. Jennifer is retirement a goal for you or is it something you don't think much about? You know, I don't think much about it. Originally, when I found the whole concept of financial independence retire early through like Mr. Money Mustache and all, I thought, wow, what a great way to pivot your brain, right? To think about this a different way because all my life I've been told you're going to need millions. And that number is too extreme. So beyond my own concept, I'm going to work until I die. Actually, I think there's a great deal of power in just pursuing aggressive savings, setting up your financial life so that you're successful, so that you have some stability. And I agree with Holly is that we need to make sure that the rest of the world had a really solid foundation of personal finance education, personal finance literacy. Um, And that's one of my goals is to share that because having that stable foundation will allow me to weather weird things that happen in life that we can't even anticipate. The holy cow, this happened fund, right? I don't usually say cow. I usually say something else. So, (laughs) (laughs) Disha, is this idea of being a doctor less part of your future goals or is it something you've not really considered? I can't see myself not wanting to work. I am a very goal-oriented person. And if I lose a goal to work towards, then I have a hard time finding happiness I think I'm going to need to work somehow. Whether it's in doctoring, I'm not sure. I hope to at least sustain part-time work in medicine for a long time. And I'm going to say that I think working is really great for the soul, whether or not you actually earn income or not, whether you're industrious, feeling like you're contributing to someone else's world or life or society or that you're productive adds a great deal of confidence to yourself, right? I am planning to work. I just don't want to have to work for money for the rest of my life. Amen. Exactly. I mean, I think even my husband, and this is really funny about him, is that when I met him, he was building a car in college. So we're car people. (laughs) Just to mention, we do have six cars right now. Yes, it's a little ridiculous. They are all used and uh, old and no loans. And they all work, by the way. When he was building that car, his sister even said to him, what are you going to do for your midlife crisis? And his immediate reaction was, hmm, I'll retire early. To him, he would rather like do fun stuff and go do hobbies, build things. We do woodworking. We do metalworking here at our house. I sew. I quilt. I do calligraphy on the side and a couple other 
projects as well. So, and we've been teaching our kids this too, so that you don't have to work to earn money, but enjoy life. I mean, there's more to life than just sitting in a cubicle. So Holly, you brought up midlife crisis, and that reminds me of the reason for getting us to talk today, which is our worst financial mistakes. In the introduction, I talked about some of mine. One was buying a home when I was only planning to live somewhere for two years. That ended up not being a financial mistake. We were able to sell it and make money, but that did lead to what I believe is one of my biggest financial mistakes, which was taking a windfall of money, having no idea what to do with it, and offloading that responsibility on someone else as opposed to taking the time and learning on my own. Jennifer, you alluded to some of your financial mistakes in a previous answer. Go ahead and give me the list. What do you think is number one, the biggest financial mistake Jennifer Ma made in her personal finance path? Oh boy. Okay. I had to think about this long and hard. And I would say that the number one mistake I made was trying to set up a business, a consultancy after my divorce, after the layoff from one of the tech companies I had been with. I didn't have a solid emergency fund. That's one. Two, I lived on credit cards. And subsequently, what wound up happening is that I couldn't get ahead of the credit card payments. I kept thinking, oh, the other contracts are going to come in and I'm going to be able to work. I'll pay off that debt. It's just a carryover for a little while. And um, I just got buried way behind in my bills. I had so much financial anxiety. I was ducking opening mail. I was not answering the phone. I was too embarrassed to tell anyone in my life that this was going on. I was very depressed. We don't talk a lot about mental health and money and finances, but I was so depressed. I could understand very much so why people jumped out of windows during the depression. Because I have to say, there was a point in time where I'm like, what am I here for? I'm an abject failure completely. There was a lot of money stress in my life and depression, and I almost took some action that I think I would have regretted and caused a lot of pain to my family. The thing that wound up happening was that I couldn't keep my head above water. And when I was drowning, I was lucky enough that I had a house that I had taken over after the divorce, refinanced in my name. And this was back in the day that you could do a stated income loan. Do you guys know what that is? No. Oh, oh, oh. young Jedi masters. No, I'm just kidding. Mm-hmm. Um, Stated income loans back in the early 2000s were basically, how much income do you make? And you just self-reported it. There was no proof. There's no documentation. There was nothing. But anyway, so I did a stated income loan. My credit history was really great at that point. I took over the house. So I got behind in my payments. And there's only a certain amount of time that you're going to let you get behind in your payments. And I wound up having to sell that house due to financial distress. And then that became another issue. It became more of a, I'm a huge failure. I lost the American dream. I thought I'd made it. And from a kid that had been raised on welfare, I really thought I'd made it. It was devastating. And it took me a few years to recover from my own sense of loss. And I didn't know who I was. Thank you so much for sharing, Jen. Thank you. Uh Thank you, Jen. I'd like to take a pause for a moment and recap. In the first half of the show, Disha, Jennifer, and Holly discuss the impact of the coronavirus and how they became acquainted with personal finance. After the break, we'll delve into their worst financial mistakes and what were the lasting consequences. But before we do, I wanted to say thanks to Joust for supporting Earn and Invest. Have you ever thought about starting your own business? Perhaps you wanted to begin a side hustle or passion project, but weren't sure where to begin. Ensuring a steady income will always be one of the first things you think of and could be the reason why you don't eventually take the leap. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. Business banking can feel complicated, but Joust makes it easy. PayArmor, Joust invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com backslash earnpod and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash E-A-R-N-P-O-D. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately 
that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. So Disha, what Jen was talking about was this issue of debt and anxiety and stress and even depression associated with our financial mistakes. Tell me about what you feel like your biggest financial mistake was. And I'm interested if it's related to that big debt you had to pay off. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we talked about lifestyle inflation right after residency that I sort of just followed the herd, that was probably my biggest financial mistake in that I didn't think about the fact that I had $200,000 in debt and I took on more debt. We were definitely a total of three-fourths of a million dollars in debt when I was an early attending the first two years. And the problem with being an early attending, and I was the sole earner in my family, my husband was going to school. The problem with that is in that time frame, I also needed to have my kids before I became a geriatric mother, you know, over 35. So, Oh, for the love of. <laughs> right. That's what we call them. That's what we call yep, them. Yep, it's yep, true. Yep. <laughs> Higher, Young whippersnappers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, no, people are having kids much later now, but a lot of the times if you put it off, then you have to undergo expensive IVF treatments to you know to get the fertility going. So either way, from the money perspective, you're going to lose early or later. But I had to take unpaid maternity leave during this time. So we were dependent on my paycheck. We are a ton in debt. We didn't have any income coming in and we had a baby and we needed to support the baby, you know, oh. and we were living in a nice doctor house and had nice cars and everybody thought we were fine. And we were, you know, technically fine, but it caused a lot of anxiety for me to be that much in debt and not have a paycheck coming in. That was my turning point was, I don't like this feeling. It's way too precarious. You know, we're making it through short-term disability payments and whatever. And we had some savings, but I said, I did not want to be there again. That's when we decided to change things around. And you know, the thing about drowning in debt, it's like when you are in that much debt, you're like flailing, right? You are just trying to do something, do a lot of different things to try to get out of there. In that flailing process, with your limbs going all over the place, you just sink in deeper sometimes. You know, your anxiety gets to you, your depression gets to you, you keep getting under the water. To get out of debt, you really need to learn. And it's easy because you already have the tools you need. You have your arms and you have your legs and you just need to coordinate them together to get your head above the water. That's what we learned how to do is just coordinate our movements, coordinate our spending and what we were doing with our income so that we could pay off the debt and get out, get rid of it and get our head above water again. Holly, as I listen to both Jen and Disha, what I really hear is the sense of hopelessness. Can you remember a time when you felt hopeless like that financially? And what did you do? Oh, gosh, a little bit of our story. First off, I'd say when my father passed away, that was definitely first the hopelessness of being 20 years old. I was in college. Thankfully, I went to a local university that didn't cost as much because I lived at home. So that really was actually a really good financial decision because my loans weren't that high at the time. 
However, it was still trying to figure out how to pay the bills. My mom had no idea how to pay the mortgage for our house. We did not know anything. Being 20 years old, I had to learn how to pay the medical bills. We had to figure out how to pay the funeral home. We had to figure out how to pay for everything, like headstone and all sorts of things like that, that no one thinks about. Most 20-year-olds never consider. And the hardest part was the medical bills, because at that time, we had to go through two different years of different insurances. So it was the same insurance, but it was like two different years. So they treated it differently because he was in the hospital between 1999 and 2000. We learned a lot about the laws because sometimes some doctor's bills would come in a year later. And based on the law at the time, they didn't have to necessarily bill us or the insurance because it was after the time. So we had to learn all those things. It was the hardest couple of years figuring all that out. Jennifer, I'm hearing all these very difficult stories. However, do you dig out of the anxiety, depression, and the real financial problems? Like, What's the first step? As hard as it is, the first step, I think, is really taking an honest assessment of where you are. I had to force myself to open all my bills. I had to force myself to face it head on. When my financial life was completely upside down and I didn't know where to go, I actually did swallow my pride and my embarrassment and went to talk to my family. And I asked them, I have a get well plan. This is the amount of money I will need after I did the whole like assessment of where I really stood. Um, and I asked for assistance and they said, nope. And it was devastating. And after they turned me down, I never talked to my friends because if my family's not going to help, why would I ever ask my friends for anything? That just seemed horrible. So I forced myself to do the hard choices. In my particular case, I did an assessment. I looked at what I had and what I owned. And I was super lucky, Doc. I was super lucky, you guys. I had a house that had equity. So what wound up happening is I did a forced sale and I took those monies and I did something that maybe I shouldn't have done. I negotiated all my debts down on all of my credit cards, paid them a lump sum, and then kept a small amount to sort of rebuild my life. I was lucky enough that I had the resources to live a year with a part-time job that provided health insurance. And by the way, health insurance, holy cow, from 20 to mid-30s, I would have said, I want more pay. I don't really care about benefits because I'm indomitable, right? I'm going to live forever. And now I'm like, what's the benefit? What insurance plan can I buy as a 1099 freelancer or as a money coach? So it's really interesting how life makes my decisions pivot. But anyway, I sold everything and I was lucky. And for people that don't have a resource like that, there's still some options. One, let's build your community around you. You know, be honest with your friends because someone has to break the taboo about talking about money or financial stress, mental health. There are lots of things that we need to break the taboo on. And that's one that I would like to help with. Take the honest assessment evaluate what's good in your life, evaluate what inherent skills you've got or talents or desire and channel that. And if you don't know where to channel that, reach out to your network and talk to them and do a pivot. And it's okay. At the point in time when I sold everything and I didn't know where I was going to live. Oh, here's the kicker. I even asked my family, okay, I'm selling the house. I don't know where to live. Can I stay with you for a few months while I reevaluate where I'm at? Guess what the answer was? Anyone? No. Oh, Doc, you so know my family. That answer was no. And again, did I ever tell my friends that I needed a place to stay or didn't know where to live? No. I'd like to think I'm a little bit wiser now. And I think that we do need to be honest with our friends and family about where we stand. And that's even harder too, especially when you are thought to be bright and smart and got your act together. Yeah. Wow. Because of my experience and my mom's experience, my passion is for couples that are living together, partners, husband, wife, be able to communicate and talk about finances together. Because my parents had a wonderful marriage, but my dad was just in charge of the finances while my mom was the stay-at-home mom who handled the stuff around the house. That's why my mom had no idea how to pay any of this stuff. It goes back to the taboo subject. Like, Jen's saying, it's so true. No one wants to talk about it. And they're scared too. And they're embarrassed. And I understand the embarrassment. I get that. Most people would never want to talk to their friends or family about this. Same thing goes with you know salary. People don't want to talk about that. They're scared too. One thing, they're embarrassed or they think that it's bragging. Money is a hard subject. I actually want to ask the personal finance community in general, what would you rather talk about as a poll? Would you rather talk about sex or money? <laughs> Yeah. Or both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you're so oh, smart, dear. man. 
let's follow up with this, Disha. Did you feel like when you were at that low point, when the debt was as bad as it was going to get and you were starting to feel anxious, did you feel like you had support either from family, community to bolster you up? Honestly, I didn't talk about it. Isn't that funny? I didn't. I uh, talked to my husband and we started making changes when we sat down together. You know, we did the assessment. We wrote down all the things that we owed and all of our spending and things like that. It was an eye opener. And then we started cutting. We started cutting our expenses. We started to game out how we were going to get out of debt. A big part of that was selling the doctor house and moving back into a resident house, going back to living a smaller, less inflated life and cutting our expenses drastically and just throwing everything at the debt. And we just started a debt snowball and got it moving. But no, we did not talk about it to anybody. At that point, I guess we were just ashamed of our debt and we didn't really want to talk about it. But also, it kind of felt normal. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we just felt like, okay, well, we're going to do something different. But, you know, no one's going to like take pity on us because I feel like a lot of people are in that situation. So we just started making changes on our own. But I guess maybe we should have talked about it. When I finally did talk about it and wrote my first post on my site, that was my time to talk about it. I was sweating bullets. Like I pressed publish and I was like, <laughs> like breathing heavy. Oh my God, what did I just do? Like I, my world is going to end, you know, like people are going to know everything about my life. I'm going to get sued and blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? Okay, everybody, let's go find her first post and write positive <laughs> comments on it. Is that a pact? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, so hard. I was going to say, you were absolutely right. It's like debt was this normal idea of what it is to be a yuppie or a professional that had some sort of financial success, right? You have right. a mortgage? Yes. Two cars? Yes. And right? a little bit of credit card? That was the norm and a sign of making it. Yeah. And I almost felt bad that I felt bad about it. Like I almost felt a little ashamed that I was like, I was not willing to carry that much debt. I didn't think anybody else would get it. In our experience, after graduating college, we bought a house at 20. So we did similar to you, Doc, where we bought a house and then the market went high. This was 2002. We sold the house to buy my in-law's house, which we live in now. We made a really nice profit on that house because the market was so crazy high. And then we put it right into a huge mortgage for this house that we bought for my in-laws, which was a wonderful house. We love it. But we were 25 years old with a enormous mortgage. Part of me says this is a financial mistake in the sense that it's such a large mortgage, but at the same time, it was reasonable for the area because we're in a high cost living area. But one thing to mention is we had a car loan. We had the mortgage. We had the school loans and it was totally normal after graduating. And then later in 2004, right around the time we were buying this house, we learned about that diet and like, let's reduce our debt. By 2008, we got rid of all of our credit card debt. We got rid of all of our school loans. We got rid of all our car loans, which was amazing. That's where we really changed everything. If you are in the midst of your worst financial decision, if you're facing the financial trauma right now, what, as a successful person who's come through the fire, what do you tell them? It'll get better. The light at the end of the tunnel is not an oncoming train. It'll get better. And you just have to breathe and make a decision one day at a time that is overall good for you. What do I mean by that? We get overwhelmed by these large plans. Like what's the big picture on the other side? If you could just take a moment and take a deep breath and make one decision at a time and keep your head down and stay focused, don't let yourself get overwhelmed by having to have every answer, I think you're going to be okay. The more flexible you are, the more you're able to look at and shift. Like I didn't go back to tech when I went back to W2 work. I went into DOD and I went into small business operations. Holly, I'd like you to address the same question. So when you are in the midst of your worst financial decision, when the financial trauma is piling up, you're feeling depressed and anxious, what can you do? What's the first step to make things better? Definitely first looking at everything, just like Jen had said earlier, making sure that you are aware of what's going on. It's so hard to make any decisions if you don't know the basics. For instance, how many credit cards you have, how many loans you have, finding out what your credit score is and looking at your credit reports. 
making sure you find out exactly how much you have in savings, whether it's checking account, savings account, your retirement accounts, being able to at least get all your information together and then looking at it, then you can start taking the first steps. My big lessons I have learned being in this community and being as a coach is taking it very gently, doing one task at a time and don't like jump in and say, okay, yes, I'm going to do it all. When people jump in and do it all at once and they've got this great excitement, they want to do it all, they can revert right back, either overspending or an emergency will happen and then they have to put it all back on a credit card and then you're right back in it again. It can be totally overwhelming. Yes, exactly. Totally overwhelming. And that's why it's like take one day at a time, go slow, educate yourself. A lot of people feel that, okay, I'm alone. I can't do this. And this is why it's great having financial coaches and financial planners, talking to people about it, asking the questions as to what do I do first? Where do I go next? When my mom and I were going through this process, we had nobody to talk to. We had no idea like what to do. So it was constantly both of us learning as we went along. We were learning how to read explanation of benefits from the insurance company. We had to learn the basics. So be prepared to read books, read online, be prepared to open up to different viewpoints and just take your time. Jennifer, it sounds like one of the first steps, as in maybe everything else in life, is self-forgiveness and self-empathy before you have to take on the Herculean task of getting your life together. I would say that's absolutely true. And the funny thing is, I think we tend to view other people with a lens of kindness and grace that we don't focus on ourselves. And really moving forward, you have to forgive yourself. And now what I tell myself and I want to share with other people is that at the time you did what you did based on the knowledge that you had, limited or imperfect or not. You did the best that you could at the time. And it's time to forgive yourself. And that forgiveness is pivotal in moving forward. It is. And and letting that not hold you back. I think it's an important message, this idea that you did the best you could at the time. And in fact, I think I'd like to end this podcast there because I think that's really the message we want to get out to people is you did what you had to at the time and things can get better and there are people around to support you. Thankfully, there is now a community of us interested in personal finance and there's wonderful people out there on the internet, on Facebook, in blogs and podcasts who are interested and supportive and can help you with the specific tools of how you get out of debt and take care of yourself financially, but also can offer you some of that emotional support. So I feel lucky to be part of this community. I feel lucky to be a part of a community that has people like you, Holly, Jen, and Disha. Let's round this out, Holly, by telling us where people can find you on the internet and what is up next in your life. You can find me at microstuff.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MS underscore financial coach. I'm available in all those. I guess what's next right now for us is I'm continuing coaching and working towards financial independence. And that's our plan. Jennifer, what's up next and where can we find you? You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram. I just set up a site for my money coaching business at yourmoneyandlife.weebly.com. But I'm around. Feel free to reach out. If I can help out, if I can share some knowledge, uh, share some emotional support, happy to do so in this trying time. I'm in almost all of the Choose FI communities. This fall, I will be talking at the Opportunity Youth Summit that is being hosted by the San Diego Workforce Partnership. And their motive and their mission is to reinvigorate, re-engage, reconnect youth. 37,000 young adults between ages 16 and 24 that are not in school and not employed in San Diego County. And they'll be asking me to do a financial independence introduction. And so I'm hoping that that I can continue to spread the idea that money is not a scary thing and that we have more agency than we believe, even when you feel like you've been beaten down. I'm also trying to get all of our communities to engage and support each other locally. Disha, tell us what's up next in your life and where can we find you on the internet? Well, next in my life is I'm about to buy a house finally again after having sold the big doctor house and uh, we're getting a great interest rate. Thank you, mortgage interest rates. And (laughs) you can find me at www.thefrugalphysician.com on Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, everywhere, Facebook. 
All right. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Holly Grosvenor, Jennifer Ma, and Disha Spath. That's a wrap. Are you ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the Earn and Invest podcast? Well, now you can engage in our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.earnandinvest.com. That's E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. So I'd like to welcome back Jessica Garbarino. She is the author of the blog, Every Single Dollar, and a frequent contributor to the Earn and Invest podcast, as well as Facebook group. Jessica, welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's been a crazy week, hasn't it? Oh my gosh. Like, I feel like I'm living in some sort of a movie or something. Like I was telling someone, I said, I feel like I'm living in World War Z or something like that. It is so out of our realm of experience dealing with something like this. I'm a physician. I've been a physician for 20 years. I have never seen anything like this. My older colleagues haven't seen anything like this. We talk about black swan events when it comes to finances, and this certainly feels like a black swan event in our life. I mean, I know the recession was a big deal back in 2008, but this is like completely different feeling in a way, because I don't think people like really even know how to deal with it or talk about it or handle it at all. There's no rule book for it. We, of course, are talking about the coronavirus and the effect that it has had on our lives. It's had huge effects on us socially and emotionally, as well as financially. And so we were drawn to this article that was posted in the Earn Invest Facebook group this week from Full Time Finance, and it is titled provocatively Falling Out of Phi. Phi, of course, refers to financial independence. And I'm going to read just a few paragraphs of the beginning before we discuss it. This is again from Full-Time Finance. It begins like this. We were financially independent. Last year, I wrote about us crossing the line to financially independent. Essentially, we hit a point where we had 25 times expenses in net worth. During much of the last year, this was excluding home equity, despite, as you recall, we own our home outright. Why 25 times? Well, 25 times expenses denotes the point where most studies show that money will last at least 30 years. Mind you, if I were to retire now, I would need to cover expenses way longer than 30 years, so I was not at my retirement number. Still, it was a fun milestone. He further goes on to say, and then the virus hit, and the market sunk into correction territory, greater than 20% decline. Again, a movement largely out of my control. If I were measuring my net worth as a goal, I'd be beating myself up after thinking I was a superstar last year. So this is an interesting idea, isn't it, Jessica? This idea that we measure financial independence by having 25 times expenses. But of course, most of our net worth, if it is connected to the stock market, can vary on any given day. Going through what now clearly seems to be a recession because of the coronavirus as well as other economic factors Is the 25 times still a good idea as a way to measure our financial independence? There almost needs to be an age component put into this calculation, I think, because I know in the article they talked about how if you suffer a major recession very early in your financial independence start, that will really put you much farther behind. And I think if this had happened maybe 10 years into their retirement or maybe even 20, it wouldn't have had as big of an impact. But when you're talking about having so many years you have to cover, suffering this early on can damage it and they may have to go back to working. So what you're talking about is sequence of returns risk. This idea that those first 10 years after you retire are crucial because if you think about it, you haven't had as much time for compounding to take place. So if you have poor or negative returns in those first 10 years, it can 
definitely affect how much money you're going to have left over afterwards. This really makes me question if the financial independence community is in for a reckoning. Most of us have come to financial independence and the movement in general has grown over the last 10 years. And of course, how has the last 10 years of market returns been? They've been great. So do you think that this first recession and maybe, God forbid, a severe recession will bring a real reckoning to the financial independence community? I think what it's going to show is who really has enough to retire. It's kind of like, I think, wasn't it Warren Buffett that said, when the tide goes out, you know who's skinny dipping? Or was that Mark Twain? Maybe he borrowed it from Mark Twain. But it's then you really know who really has the fine numbers. I think some of these people who do what's called, quote, lean fi, where they're a much smaller financial lump sum that they're working off of in their retirement, I think they're really going to have a rough time. I think the fat fire, people who are hoping to have a really nice income every year, very luxurious retirement, they may just have to scale back for a while and not pull out as much. I think there needs to be some rethinking, but I think there's got to be an age component put into that. You know, it would be very interesting for someone to run the numbers, do it based off of someone retiring at 30, 40, 50, 55, and so on, just to see how a recession would impact those retirement dates. So it might have been Warren Buffett or Mark Twain, but at least in our Facebook group on the post, it was Rick McGinley who said, when the tide goes out, we see who is swimming naked. Right. (laughs) And then, of course, Dylan Rhodes responded to that, but some people like to swim naked. Yeah, I guess. Some people like to be on the edge. Well, I have a few thoughts based on what you were saying. One of the things is a lot of people always say, well, if the market drops out or if worse comes to worse... I can freelance or I can go get part-time work, et cetera. The interesting thing about what's happening right now is go out and try to find a job. It's probably harder. So yes, possibly Uber Eats needs more drivers at the moment. But if we go into a full shelter-in-place type environment, there may not be that many jobs out there to pick up if you decide that your numbers all of a sudden don't look so good. And here's another interesting thing by the generation. So a lot of millennials were just coming out of college with the last recession. And yes, they couldn't find their first job. But a lot of Gen Xers were well into their career. And some of us, like myself, lost jobs and homes. So now it's like we're getting a double whammy again. So it's always interesting to see in the discussion of the FI community who was very severely impacted at that first recession and how their strategy of investing and saving over time is versus someone who didn't. Because I can tell you, I've seen people posting things that are very aggressive. They don't feel like they need as much, but they may not have suffered as greatly in the past as well. You had mentioned before this idea of had someone gone and mapped out if someone retired in their 30s and 40s and 50s. And of course, there is the Trinity study, which is Mm -hmm. where this 4% withdrawal rate, safe withdrawal rate, or the 25 times rule came from. The truth of the matter is there's certainly still many people who are proponents of the 4% rule in our Facebook page at that post. Scott Trench replied, those who retired with 4% rule, even if it was immediately before the crash, are still more likely than not never to run out of money. This is the point of the 4% rule. So it is true that if you go by the Trinity study, at least for that 30-year time period, you have a pretty high likelihood of success. But I will tell you also that for people who just retired recently, Robert Chase is one of them. And Robert responds, Scott, I'm sitting here as one of those recent early retirees that was way above the 25 times when I retired. Fully understanding the 4% rule and being comfortable while this happens are two very different things. I still have four or five decades to hopefully live in our assets. I know all the math, but being down at this percentage is just not comfortable and probably won't be for a bit longer. So this idea of knowing the math versus the emotions are two different things. And I think that's what a lot of people are trying to reconcile. I mean, even my parents, they retired a normal retirement age a couple of years ago. And even my parents have decided they're taking out less than they would have normally just because they don't know. And they probably need it to last at least 20 years. 
I guess part of the problem is, and this is what's happened with Corona, is all of our assumptions about what will work and what won't are based on what's happened in the past. We already know that something like Corona has not happened. So yes, we had the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918. The economy was much different now. So it's really hard to know what this is going to do to our own personal economies as well as our global economy. And therefore, there's uncertainty, and uncertainty causes fear. Yep, I agree. We were much less integrated as a world back in 1918 than we are now, too. So you're not relying, you weren't relying on as much trade amongst different countries. So when one big country falls, kind of now the whole world falls. It's interesting. It's uncharted waters we're, we're dealing with. Jessica, tell me how you would feel if you had just retired with 25 times savings. Would you be quaking in your boots right now? To be honest, I would. But I'm also someone who I'm not sure if I'm ever going to give up working for any sort of money either. And not that I necessarily think I'm always chasing a dollar. It's just that because of what's happened in my past... I just feel like I'm always going to be needing to bring in something. And of course, as we talk about healthcare, and we've talked about this in the community, who knows what that cost is going to be. So I would probably still be already working. And I think a lot of us also realize that even in retirement, many of us will eventually lean back into some type of work, work that probably produces some income. But when you're hit with what might be a black swan event like this, your emergency fund and having some liquid assets becomes really important. Maybe 25 times isn't enough, but if you have a decent amount of an emergency fund, if you have a year or two of expenses saved up, you'll be able to wither the storm enough such that you'll be able to get back to work you enjoy and it won't feel like you're slaving away at a desk all the time. I have found people in the fire community who decide to keep their emergency fund in the stock market. The past 10 years, I've been watching this and people are telling me, oh, I keep it in the, I want it to always be earning interest. And I'm like, listen, this is not about making money. You got to think of it like insurance. Insurance should never make you money. (laughs) It's going to cost you. So I think we also have to get back into the mindset of what an emergency fund really is. And then there's the other side, which is fairly cavalier, which is there people out there saying, ooh, I'm really looking forward to this market downturn. I'm going to start investing in stocks as quick as possible. Are you thinking of throwing more money into the stock market right now, Jessica? So I am of the persuasion that I'm going to consistently invest as I always have. Um, In fact, last week, I made another contribution as I always do to my IRA. And I continue to buy mutual funds, things that are diversified. I don't change my investing strategy. I think that's where we get into problems when people start day trading. And also people shouldn't just be jumping into the market without having some sort of knowledge about how it works. (laughs) Because it's like buying something you know nothing about and not doing any research on it. So I would implore people to do their homework first before diving in. The truth of the matter is both of us know that you should have a long-term investing strategy that shouldn't change from moment to moment with the market. And you should have an asset allocation that you're comfortable with. And that asset allocation shouldn't change based on the market. It should change based on your age and where you are financially and what your long-term plans are. So I, like you, am trying to be consistent and keep on investing the way I've invested always, both in up markets and down markets. People ask me, when is it a good time to invest? And I say, always, (laughs) consistently. (laughs) Of course, you want to be diversified. You don't want to have every single cent of your money in equities, nor every single cent of your money in bonds. I think there are other asset allocations that are important. I think you need to be diversified. But I agree, this is not the time to start changing your investing plan. Agreed. All right. Well, Jessica, thank you again for coming on the show. These are heady and unprecedented times in our lives, especially with the coronavirus, with what we are now calling a stock market recession. I hope you as well as everyone else stays safe and stick to your investing plan and hopefully we'll all be just fine. Thanks, Doc. 
that was a lot of fun. Thank you guys. And thank you for being on and being honest and open and talking about difficult things. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And I, it was funny. One thing I would love to say is that um, when you mentioned your um, money mistake, we had a very similar money mistake too of going to a financial advisor and paid high fees. And yeah, yeah. and I actually did the whole tech stock thing too. Yeah. So I had taken my four hundred one k and and I thought I was a smart smart investor and I was over uh, allocated to tech stocks and when that market tanked it was horrible and um, yeah I've seen it all yeah. man the, the cool thing about it and we didn't talk about it a lot here but the cool thing about it is almost every successful financial person I know has made major mistakes yeah no one I know is immune. We've all done stupid things. And I guess the story to let everyone know is you can do stupid things in your past and yet be interested and wish to do better and you can do better. And most people I know who live fairly happy, good financial lives did so after rebounding after something they did wrong. And that's just normal. We've all gone through it. Almost every success has a story of multiple small failures. At some or point. large failures. <laughs> or large failures, yeah. yeah. And that should be in the podcast right there, what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. a really well, good point. <laughs> we will. I'll, really find, point. I'll find a way to put it. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.